0: Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, the reality behind lawmakers' visits to the U.S.-Mexico border. (music) Border crossings have surged since 2020. That year, the number of encounters reported by Border Patrol agents in Arizona was around 91,000. In 2021, that number more than quadrupled to 400,000. Then last year, it went up by half to almost 600,000. Those numbers are perhaps a sign of why the Arizona-Mexico border has been visited by congressional delegations three times so far this year. It started with a bipartisan Senate delegation led by Arizona's senators that visited Yuma in mid-January followed by two House Republican delegations in February that traveled to Cochise County and Yuma again. That second event in Yuma focused on topics we've heard mentioned by elected officials before, like when Arizona Congressman Andy Biggs raised the issue of how fentanyl makes its way into the U.S. First, undercut a narrative that our colleagues uh, across the aisle raise, and they say that, uh, they'll tell you that 90% of fentanyl is seized at the border, uh, at the port of entry, right? Port of entry. As if there is not a massive amount of fentanyl and other drugs coming between
1: the ports of entry.
0: But the federal lawmakers also heard from community members who provide vital services that are impacted, such as Yuma Regional Medical Center President and CEO, Dr. Robert Trenchell. We've delivered $26 million in uncompensated care to migrants that have crossed the border. You know, when you, if you think of it this way, you know, we're required by law to see everybody that comes to our door, and we have to do that. And there's been 300,000 people that lined up at the border and they've come in over the past year. And we have to see any one of those that needs a hospital visit, And we've done that. And we do it with pride. And everybody gets the same level of care. Then there was also an event held by Democratic Arizona Congressman Raul Grijalva timed to be counter-programming to those events. Never once did they speak to people on the ground. Never once did they go and talk to Amanda Aguirre and the Regional Health Center, nor did they speak to the mayor and elected officials of the communities that are right on the border. Nor did they uh, go and see how nonprofits, faith organizations, Salvation Army are dealing with the humanitarian crisis that they're confronting. Lisa Sturgis reported on two of those events for KAWC in Yuma.
2: There's two issues that are intertwined here. We've got border security and immigration reform. The Republican Judiciary Committee, because there were no Democrats in attendance and no Democratic interests were invited to provide testimony either. Ergo, I think we can classify it as Republican. But anyway, there was not. They were talking security. They talked to the sheriff, Sheriff Leon Wilmot. They talked to vice chairman of the Yuma County supervisors, Jonathan Lines. And they spoke to Dr. Robert Trenchell of Yuma Regional, the CEO and president of Yuma Regional Medical Center. All three of which have made appearances on Fox News in recent months, in stories that came up with headlines stating that the area was under imminent collapse due to the border crisis. Now, the reality is we don't have asylum seekers camping out on the streets, in the street corners. They're just like moved straight through to where they're going. There is citing that crime is up And then there are also reports that as a result of the Border Patrol focus being geared towards the western end of Yuma County, that leaves the rural eastern part of the county open to increased drug smuggling. And there have been citations that more fentanyl is coming over the border that way. I reached out to Customs and Border Protection. They told me they are seeing an uptick at drug busts at the highway checkpoints, although they cannot tell us whether those drugs at some point pass through a port of entry because there was the debate. Andy Biggs raised question with the statistic that says that 90% of the drugs of the fentanyl crossing into the US was coming through the ports. And Jonathan Lines provided testimony that would seem to indicate that was the case. CBP couldn't give me data to back that up. I've asked the Yuma County Sheriff's Office for their stats on what they're getting as far as drugs. They have not been forthcoming with that information.
0: So at the end of the hearing, as you said, it was all Republicans who came down from Congress. What do you think they learned? Did they they learn anything they didn't know already?
2: I do not believe so if I may may be so bold to say, I'm not sure it was their intention to learn anything new. to me it seemed more like a mission in which they would gather evidence to support the theories that they had going into it um, even in making his opening statements, Congressman Jim Jordan, who's the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, made it clear that they were here to take aim at Biden immigration policies, and they called for the impeachment of Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas not even 10 minutes into the hearing. Um, So there was a definite agenda. Another thing I think I need to comment on you was this was very unlike, it was a field hearing, but it had none of the traditional decorum that one would see with a committee hearing on Capitol Hill. Um, Most of the people that attended arrived sporting patriotic gear, flag gear. Then we saw the um, let's go Brandon t-shirts. People were taking selfies with Matt Gates And Mark Lamb and some of the more better known conservative border voices that we have here. It was a little bit unusual and very casual.
0: Congressman Grijalva, who represents western Tucson all the way through Yuma, also came through the Yuma area recently. Did his visit feel equally as political? Just the other side?
2: Congressman was stopped by the radio station on his way into town that morning. And he told me that this was been planned. This was, this is a legislative work period. So it's a time when a lot of congressmen and senators and stuff go back to their home districts and they make these road trips across the state. The perception is largely that it was going to be a dog, a quote dog and pony show. The mayor of San Luis called it a dog and pony show. He just was encouraging them to step outside their bubble and not speak to the same people that had been heard from on conservative channels and encourage them to don't just go to the border, go to the border communities that are impacted by this.
0: How about that group? Of, and it was a bipartisan group, if I remember correctly, of U.S. senators who came to visit
2: Well, that was a completely different atmosphere because it was bipartisan. They were actually tripartisan, as Senator Kirsten Sinema wanted to point out, because it was post her departure from the Democratic Party. However, that really was a sense that they were there to work together. They had assembled probably... 10 witnesses to speak to them about a variety of issues that included Sheriff Wilmont and some of the county supervisors and some agricultural interests. And that was another thing. The agricultural interests were not heard from during the Judiciary Committee hearing. During the winter time, Yuma is providing seventy to eighty percent of the wintertime vegetables for the United States of America. And while we have immigration hiccups, we're having a really hard time getting the farm workers. That seasonal influx of migrant farm workers is very critical to the area. But they did not address that.
0: And as you started out by saying that's why the the border question it's not just security, it's economics, it's so many other things for a place like Yuma that is a border community. It's not just the issues that are making the headlines
2: no it it's it is very complicated. I've had to learn a lot <laughs> <laughs>
0: One of the things that we hear sometimes. In Tucson and and have over the past years, and of course, we are not on the border. We're 60 miles north of the border, 70 miles, depending on where you are in town, is strain on hospitals. Is Yuma seeing a strain on its hospitals? Obviously smaller because Yuma is smaller. Uh, and ha- if so, has any of that been addressed by the members?
2: I should point out it is hospital, singular. We only have one. Dr. Robert Trenchell, the CEO and president, was among those called to testify. And he says in just the past six months, the hospital has provided something in the neighborhood of $23 million in uncompensated care to migrants. He puts the total figure dating back to the 2019 start of the surge at around $60 million. And what he appealed to the committee was he's looking for a payer source. He just wants to know to whom. To send the bill. That is something that I currently am trying to dig into and see what their avenues are. I know that the Regional Center for Board of Health, who's doing all of the migrant processing here in Yuma, is being reimbursed through FEMA. And it's really hinky because if the migrants plan to stay in Arizona, the hospital could bill access. But because Yuma is a transit point, Access isn't going to accept those bills. The option that I guess the hospital has is for them to find out where these people's final destinations are in hopes of submitting the bill to wherever they're going to be ultimately residing. But I'm not even sure that process has been fleshed out.
0: And that's a lot of work for a single hospital that has health care to deal with to be tracing down individuals in other states and things like that and then going after state dollars from Michigan or, or wherever.
2: The hospital insists That patient care has not been compromised in the process of all this. The people that are absorbing the stress would be the staff members and the administrators who, you know, staff members are working overtime. Administrators are scrambling to try to find travel nurses and travel doctors that can help pick up the pace which also adds extra dollars because travel nurses don't come cheap when the committee toured the hospital they visited the neonatal wing and apparently because so many asylum seekers want to cross the border while they're pregnant so that they can have their babies in this country and give them automatic citizenship. You know, during the height of the surge, there were a lot of babies. So nurses described things like going out to the Walmart, the Target, anywhere they could to buy car seats so that the immigrants would leave with car seats for their babies. Now that was one question from the committee. They asked the nurses, Well, do you do that for everybody? And the nurses said that they do. It was just that they're not used to such a volume where they have to actually go out and like find them.
0: You obviously live in Yuma. What's the thoughts on the streets? What are people who live in Yuma and are not elected officials and not on various TV shows, Pick Your Network, saying about all of this?
2: Uh, Fix the problem. Those of us who have lived along the border and I, my family has lived in Yuma on and off since 1940. I myself relocated here in 1980 and illegal immigration has always been a fact of life in Yuma, Arizona. We've always seen a trickle, but this is not a trickle. This is a tidal wave. You know, in December, we were seeing more than 7,000 Border Patrol encounters a week. More than 30,000 asylum seekers pass through Yuma in the month of December that we know of. Yuma only has a permanent year-round population of around 92,000. So if you think of it that way, we saw a third of our permanent population come through here in the month of December. It's better now, but still, it's still like 2,200, 2,300 a week. I don't think that the people on the ground see it as a much of a partisan issue as those in Congress do, but I do think that they're eager for both sides to come together and just make a dent in the problem because while there's the stalemate, nothing's getting done.
0: All right. Well, thanks for spending some time with us.
2: Absolutely.
0: That was Lisa Sturgis, reporter and Morning Edition host for member station KAWC in Yuma. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. We're looking at recent congressional attention to the U.S.-Mexico border in Arizona. One group that's involved in helping immigrants and refugees on both sides of the border is the Kino Border Initiative a Catholic immigrant ministry based in Nogales. Sister Tracy Horan is the Initiative's Associate Director of Education and Advocacy. I started our conversation by asking her about how demand for her group's services has changed.
1: Uh, Numbers, I think, were at a low during the first part of the pandemic. So in 2020, you know, everything was up in the air. A lot of people were hunkered down at home. A lot of people were not migrating at that time. Um, And also we saw with Title 42, uh, the impact of people, you know, knowing they could not access safety if they arrived here at the border. Uh, But I think a big shift for us has been just the uncertainty of different policies, how they would affect people arriving here, and also, you know, just people being expelled. And so, for example, in the fall, you know, when we saw that the Biden administration started extending Title 42 expulsions to Venezuelans, we started seeing you know, Venezuelans who previously you know, could cross into the US, turn themselves into officials, and then continue a process to get a court date and access safety, all of a sudden were are being expelled uh, back to places like Nogales. And now we're seeing more folks from Venezuela from Haiti, from Cuba, uh, who previously would have been able to be channeled into the U.S., start a process, get a court date, and then go, you know, be with their family that was waiting for them. And so one of the big shifts, I think, has just been the uncertainty. Um, You know, I hear people with uh, we're having snow here in Nogales talking about the weirding of the weather. I almost feel like there's been a weirding of of these trends. Uh, It used to be we could predict that in the spring and the fall. Uh, When the weather wasn't as extreme, you would have more people crossing in remote areas. You'd have more people migrating. Um, You know, the summer heat here is so extreme. It's really dangerous for people trying to cross uh, in, you know, December, January. You know, there are the holidays that tends to affect people as well. Uh, But now it, it just seems like it's harder to predict and sometimes it's shifting and changing based on the policies and also based on the U.S. government deciding, for example, to expel dozens or hundreds of people uh, to these border towns.
0: Because the services you all offer and, and, and do are on both sides of the border, Arizona and Sonora, have you seen a demand shift where you need more services on the Arizona side than you used to, or more services on the Sonora side than you used to? Or as you were just saying, is it unpredictable and moves back and forth?
1: So there was a time actually during the pandemic where our U.S. office, we sort of converted into a reception a welcome center for people who were crossing under one of the exception processes when they sort of the Biden administration sort of opened a, a small window for a small number of families to cross through each day. Um, and so we were expanding our capacity on the U.S. side to respond to that, uh, which isn't typical, generally speaking. Uh, our humanitarian services are almost exclusively on the Mexico side. That's where we have our shelter. That's where we have the meals that we serve daily. Um, Our social workers, our psychologists, all of that is on the Mexico side. So that was a little bit of a shift for us. Um, And now there is a reception center in Nogales, Arizona. Uh, And so our volunteers help staff that. uh, But for the most part, there's other organizations who are stepping up.
0: Especially in the start of the pandemic back in 2020, and the Remain in Mexico policy was really taking hold, we heard a lot about some really poor conditions in especially Nogales and other places in Mexico right up against the border as people were waiting. Have things gotten any better?
1: You know, the thing that's interesting about Nogales is you don't see exactly like a tent city of people— you know, waiting outside, trying to hold their spot to access asylum, Um, the issue is a lot more hidden. So you have a lot of families that are bunkered down, you know, maybe they're renting a room. Um, So, you know, you think of the size of a a typical bedroom in the U.S. uh, and you might have 10 people sleeping on the floor, uh, probably no heat or air conditioning. And so the weather extremes can be really rough. It's one thing to be waiting maybe a week in those conditions with the family, but then once that time extends to, to months, uh, that really gets hard on the families that are here. And in addition to that, I would say just the issue with the organized crime groups, they've really gained even more of a stronghold during this time. And so you think about now, it's been three years almost that people who are, are seeking protection in the U.S. have not been able to access any kind of normal process when they arrive at a a port of entry, you know, that means these families who are waiting, if they get to a point where they're in immediate danger or they just, you know, can't hold on anymore in these conditions, a lot of them are making the choice to pay a smuggler to cross into the U.S. There have been moments when we've had these exceptions processes. Nowadays, we have this CBP app. You know, we were hopeful when that first was launched mid-January, you know, maybe People will actually be able to access a process in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, But it's become pretty quickly clear to us that, um, you know, that's not the case. So now it's been, you know, a month and a half with that process. And we have lots of folks who have tried day after day to access an appointment through this application. At 7 a.m. every day, there is a new day of appointments that's open. So in Nogales, that looks something like 40 people. You know, 40 is a small number, and we have folks tell us that day after day they're getting up at 4 a.m. or 3 a.m. to make sure all of their info is in the app and make sure that they're ready to, you know, push the button and and find their appointment at 7 a.m. Because by 701, the appointments are all gone. What that's meant for a lot of folks is that they're kind of back in the same situation of uncertainty. I talked actually with a group of families from southern Mexico. Uh, last week, so they had been trying for six weeks, every single day, uh, and they were in this town where they really didn't feel safe and, at the border, and they just couldn't handle it anymore. So they decided to cross between ports of entry, you know, with the goal of turning themselves in to U.S. officials to to start their asylum process, so that someone could would hear their case. And so they paid this smuggler, and they turned themselves in and the Border Patrol agents, actually told them, you know, we're going to take you to this shelter for families. But what happened instead was within a few hours, they were being expelled to Mexico. And when they asked the Border Patrol agent why they've been lied to, he said, uh, and I won't use his exact words, but something along the lines of, I don't give a care. Uh, and so, you know, that's happening now. We're seeing people that have have been kind of holding out. They, they want to access a legal process, they wanna go through these channels at the ports of entry, but the channels have just been closed off to them. They're really not accessible.
0: And it sounds like with new Biden administration policies coming down where if someone is caught between the port of entries, entering between the ports of entry, they can't claim asylum, we're going to hear more of those stories. Is that word getting out?
1: You know, it's hit and miss people who are migrating, you know, have strong community family ties. So, you know, in some ways, some people do arrive to us and they've already heard about the application, uh, but others arrive and I ask, you know, have you, do you know about CBP-1? Have you heard about Title 42? And they say, no, you know, this is the first time I'm hearing about this. You know, we were just uh, received death threats yesterday and picked up our family and left.
0: We've heard a lot of talk out of Washington, especially with the new Congress, uh, about immigration again. Are you hopeful at all that something will get done, or is this just political theater, the topic of the moment, and it'll change when something else comes up?
1: You know, I'm a Catholic sister, so I I always hold on to a little piece of hope, uh, and I get a lot of hope from the families that are arriving here. But Um, I think in general, it's really difficult for us to see this continuing trend. So the most recent asylum ban, you know, the Trump administration putting forth this rule, they're proposing this rule that anyone who crosses through another country on their way to seek safety in the U.S. has to apply for asylum in that country. Um, Well, that essentially means you're cutting off access to safety to all of the folks from Guatemala, from Venezuela, from Ecuador or from these other countries who are arriving. And so it's really tough to see that, which, you know, it's almost a carbon copy of the asylum ban during the Trump administration. And so, you know, there are ways in which at the beginning of this administration, we saw some hopeful movements, the first exceptions process, uh, the administration moving toward finding ways for folks to, to access safety, even in the midst of the pandemic, uh, and then the unwind of the Remain in Mexico policy. But it does feel like we're slipping back into the same. And I would say, you know, time and again, this prevention through deterrence, you know, we've now seen decades where our policies are more and more trying to make it more difficult, more dangerous, more dehumanizing for people to access safety or to access a dignified life in the U.S. And we haven't made a turnaround on that. So when you zoom out, it it is hard to be hopeful. Um, And unfortunately, I think... These policies are are continuing to move us in that direction. So you know we're going to need a lot of folks speaking out and making it clear that we want to be a country that welcomes people. That we want to to widen our tents. We we want to make sure that we're making good on our promises as a country to not return people to danger, uh, to not close our doors. You know, as the promises that we made after World War II. Um, so. Those promises and commitments are really being tested right now. And in a lot of ways, I think we're failing that test.
0: All right, Sister. Well, thank you for spending some time with us.
1: You're welcome. It's my pleasure.
0: That was Sister Tracy Haran with the Kino Border Initiative. And that's the buzz for this week. Tune in next week as we look at the effect of abandoned and defunct mines in the state and efforts to solve that problem. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Zach Ziegler is our producer with production help from Samantha Larnett and Phil Howard. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening.